Chapters 14 and 15 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 14. Militant Socialism. The IWW. 134. Origin of the IWW. The letters IWW are a convenient abbreviation which is used to designate a group of militant socialists calling themselves the Industrial Workers of the World. The IWW resembles a French socialist group known as syndicalists, and on that account the IWW are sometimes called the American syndicalists. As a matter of fact, the IWW are a distinct group and are in no way affiliated with the French syndicalists. The IWW movement can be traced to a minor strike in Colorado in 1903. As the result of the labor unrest, which this strike accentuated, a conference of radical labor leaders was called in Chicago in 1904 to discuss the question of forming a socialist organization which should advocate methods more drastic than those of political socialism. In the summer of 1905, a second convention was held in Chicago, and a constitution was drawn up and subscribed to. Section 1 of Article 1 of this constitution reads, This organization shall be known as the Industrial Workers of the World. 135. The IWW and the Political Socialists. Similarities. Like the Political Socialists, the IWW go back to Karl Marx for their basic teachings. William D. Haywood, one of the IWW leaders, accepted Marx's theory of surplus value in these terms. Quote, the theory of surplus value is the beginning of all socialist knowledge. It shows the capitalist in his true light, that of an idler and a parasite. It proves to the workers that the capitalists should no longer be permitted to take any of their product. End quote. The IWW also stressed the class struggle. The preamble to their constitution declares that, quote, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common, and asserts that, quote, between these two classes a struggle must go on until all the workers of the world organize as a class, take possession of the earth and the machinery of production, and abolish the wage system, end quote. In these important particulars, there is agreement between the IWW and the political socialists. 136. The IWW and the political socialists. Differences. The chief difference between the two groups is one of method. The political socialists prefer political action to violence. The IWW prefer violence to political action. The IWW believe that political methods are altogether too slow and unreliable, and, accordingly, they have so far refused to affiliate with any political party. The extreme limits to which the IWW have gone in the matter of violence have caused many political socialists to disavow this militant group. The attempt has even been made to prove that the IWW are not socialists at all, though, as a matter of fact, they are as truly so as any other socialist group. 137. IWW Methods. The Strike. 
The IWW used the strike, not as a means of securing better working conditions, but as a method of fomenting revolution. Instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work, declares the preamble to their constitution, we must inscribe on our banner the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wage system. In their use of the strike, the IWW accordingly opposed consolation or arbitration of any kind, and whether or not they gain their point, they go back to work with the intention of striking again at the next opportune time. This policy has been formulated by the IWW in the following words, quote, Strike, win as much as possible, go back to work, recuperate, strike again. Whatever concessions from capitalism the workers secure, sooner or later, they will strike again, end quote. The principal strikes initiated in pursuance of this policy occurred at McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania, in 1909, Lawrence, Massachusetts, in 1912, Butte, Montana, in 1914, and Bisbee, Arizona, in 1916. Violence and lawlessness have been prominent features of each of these strikes. 138. IWW Methods Sabotage the word sabotage is of French origin and is used to describe any sort of deliberate action on the part of workmen which results in the destruction of the employer's property. Sabotage is a species of guerrilla warfare designed to foment the class struggle. Louis Levine, an IWW sympathizer, has said that, quote, stirring up strife and accentuating the struggle as much as is in his power is the duty, end quote of the IWW. Some of the commoner forms of sabotage are injuring delicate machinery, exposing the employer's trade secrets to rival employers, lying to customers about the quality of the goods, crippling locomotives so that they cannot be operated, slashing the harness of teamsters, shipping the perishable goods to the wrong destination, burning forests and wheat fields, sawing lumber into unusual lengths, and allowing foodstuffs to spoil or deteriorate. 139. IWW Methods Destruction of Life In their effort to destroy the existing order of society, some of the IWW are frankly willing to go as far as assassination. IWW leaders have advised their followers, both orally and through their writings, to extend the term sabotage to cover the destruction of human life. During the World War, the IWW caused a loss of life by putting poison in canned goods and by causing train wrecks. They have advocated the placing of ground glass in foods served in hotels and restaurants. Since the organization was formed in 1905, several bomb outrages resulting in the loss of life have been charged against the IWW, but in justice to this group, it must be observed that these crimes have never been proved to have been committed by authorized IWW agents. 140. Negative Character of the IWW the IWW resemble the political socialists in their failure to offer a definite system which could be substituted for the capitalistic system. Some of the IWW, it is true, have formulated a plan by means of which society is someday to be organized primarily on an industrial basis. 
According to this program, the workers of a given industry, say the railroad industry, will be organized into a single union, rather than, as at present, into a number of trade unions, such as an engineer's union, as distinct from the fireman's union, the brakeman's unions, and so on. The railroad union would in turn become a branch of a great transportation union, and the transportation union would in turn become a division of the one big union, which is to include all workers in all countries of the world. If this plan were approved by the entire IWW organization, it would mean that the IWW intended industry to be controlled by a super organization of working men, all other persons to be excluded from any control whatsoever. As a matter of fact, this is the program of only a faction of the IWW. The idea of one big union is opposed by a second group, which insists that after the destruction of capitalism, industry must be handed over to the exclusive control of small units of laborers, unafflicted with and uncontrolled by any larger organization. Beyond the formulation of these two opposing views, a constructive IWW program has never been developed. Attention continues to be centered upon the destruction of the present system. 141. Undemocratic character of the IWW. The IWW oppose our present democracy. They oppose our Constitution and its fundamental guarantees of personal liberty, individual rights, and private property. They seek revolution not in order to secure justice for the masses, but in order to place the laboring class in complete power in industry and government. They announce their intention of continuing the class struggle. Quote, Until the working class is able to take possession and control of the machinery, premises, and materials of production right from the capitalists' hands, and to use that control to distribute the product of industry entirely among the workers. End quote. 142. Limited Appeal of the IWW Program It is a testimonial to the common sense of American workmen that the IWW have made little headway. Until the Lawrence strike in 1912, the movement centered in the far west, and it is even now practically confined to those parts of the west where industry is less well organized and where family life is less stable. Miners, lumbermen, and railway construction workers are prominent in the movement. In general, the IWW theory appeals chiefly to the lower strata of unskilled labor, to young homeless workers, to transients, and to unassimilated immigrants. The better trained and more intelligent American workmen reject the program of the IWW. These latter workmen believe in bettering their condition through the gradual development and enforcement of industrial standards made possible by lawful cooperation with the employer. The truth of this statement is borne out by the fact that, whereas the IWW number is scarcely 3,000, the American Federation of Labor has more than 4 million members. Numerically, the IWW are unimportant, and it is chiefly their violent and spectacular tactics which attract attention. End of chapter 14. Chapter 15. Militant Socialism. The Bolshevists. 143. Significance of Bolshevism. The term Bolshevist is used to designate a group of militant socialists that seized power in Russia in the fall of 1917. 
Strictly speaking, the Bolshevists were purely a Russian group. Nevertheless, they are of interest to students of American democracy. Until the outbreak of the World War, socialism was primarily a theory, the claims of which could not definitely be settled for the reason that it had never been applied on a large scale. Bolshevism is significant because it is the only instance in the history of the world where nationwide socialism has actually been put into operation. The peculiar conditions surrounding the Russian experiment may prevent any detailed conclusions as to the availability of Bolshevist experience for other countries. On the other hand, the general results of that experiment must throw some light upon what we might expect if a socialist experiment were made in other countries. It is important, therefore, that we inquire into the nature of the Russian socialist state. 144. Origin of the Bolshevists There is a popular impression that since the word Bolshevist means majority in the Russian language, the Bolshevists represented or constituted a majority of the Russian people. This is not true, as the history of the group shows. The origin of the Bolshevists dates from a convention of the Russian Social Democratic Party in 1903, at which time a majority took an extreme stand upon the politics then being discussed in convention. In the years that followed, the Bolshevists became known as the radical or extreme wing of the Russian Social Democratic Party, as opposed to the Menshevists or moderate wing. It appears that as early as 1905, the Bolshevists planned to secure control of the Russian government. The opportunity presented itself during the World War, which Russia had entered early in August 1914. In March 1917, a non-Bolshevist group initiated a revolution, which overthrew the government of the Tsar and established a provisional government under the leadership of Alexander Kerensky. This government immediately instituted a number of democratic reforms, including the extension of the suffrage to all men and women who were Russian citizens. These citizens elected delegates to a constituent assembly, but at this point the Bolshevists, seeing that the voters of Russia were overwhelmingly against Bolshevism, attacked the new government. The constituent assembly was forcibly dissolved, its defenders slaughtered, and on November 7, 1917, the Bolshevists seized the reins of government. Thus, Bolshevism as a government came into being as the result of suppressing the lawfully expressed will of the Russian people. 145. The Bolshevist Constitution, Liberal Elements On July 10, 1918, the Bolshevists adopted a constitution, this remarkable document was a strange compound of liberal and despotic elements. It made a number of important promises to the people of Russia, announcing, for example, that the new government would put an end to every ill that oppresses humanity. In pursuit of this ideal, the church was separated from the state, and complete freedom of conscience was accorded all citizens of Russia. Citizens were to enjoy complete freedom of speech and of the press, for the purpose of securing freedom of expression to the toiling masses, provision was made for free circulation throughout the country of newspapers, books, and pamphlets. Full and general education to the poorest peasantry was also promised. Capital punishment was declared abolished, 
and a solemn protest against war and violence of every kind was adopted. 146. The Bolshevist Constitution. Restricted Suffrage. These liberal provisions were offset, however, by a number of important restrictions upon the voting rights of the people. Article 4 of the Bolshevist Constitution declared that the right to vote should not be extended to the following groups. All persons employing hired laborers for profit, including farmers who have even a single part-time helper. All persons receiving incomes from interest, rent, or profits. All persons engaged in private trade, even to the smallest shopkeeper. All ministers of religion of any kind. All persons engaged in work which was not specifically designed by the proper authorities as productive and useful to society, members of the old royal family, and individuals formerly employed in the imperial police service. The Constitution further provided that representation in the various deliberative assemblies, called Soviets or councils, should be arranged so that one urban Bolshevist would be equal in voting strength to five non-Bolshevist peasants. Lastly, the Constitution significantly neglected to provide any machinery whereby the voters, either as individuals or in groups, could make nominations for any governmental office. The power of nomination was assumed by various Bolshevist officials. 147. The Bolshevist Constitution. Provision for Despotism. The Bolshevist Constitution frankly provided for a despotism, quote, for the purpose of securing the working class in the possession of complete power, end quote, reads the concluding section of Chapter 2 of the Constitution, quote, and in order to eliminate all possibility of restoring the power of the exploiters, the capitalist or employing class, it is decreed that all workers be armed and that a socialist red army be organized and the propertied class disarmed, end quote. These steps, the Constitution goes on to state, were to be taken for the express purpose of introducing nationwide socialism into Russia. 148. Dictatorship of the Proletariat Shortly after the publication of the Constitution, Lenin and Trotsky, the two Bolshevist leaders, established what was called the Dictatorship of the Proletariat. The word proletariat refers vaguely to the working classes, but the Bolshevists interpreted the term to cover only that portion of the workers which was pledged to the support of socialist doctrine. Lenin admitted that a small number of Bolshevized working men, the proletariat, was maintaining, by force of arms, a despotic control over the masses of the people. Just as 150,000 lordly landowners under Tsarism dominated 130 million of Russian peasants, he once declared, so 200,000 members of the Bolshevist party are imposing their will on the masses. According to these figures, the controlling element in Russia included less than one-sixth of one percent of the people. From the first, the great majority of the peasants stolidly resisted the socialization of the country, but this did not discourage the Bolshevist leaders. We have never spoken of liberty, said Lenin early in 1921. We are exercising the dictatorship of the proletariat in the name of the minority because the peasant class in Russia is not yet with us. 
We shall continue to exercise it until they submit. I estimate the dictatorship will last about 40 years. 149. Suppression of Democracy The democratic tendencies evidenced under the Kerensky regime and apparently encouraged by some of the provisions of the Bolshevist constitution were quickly checked by the dictatorship. It became the policy of the government to deprive all individuals and groups of rights which could be utilized by them to the detriment of the socialist revolution. The semblance of a representative system was retained, but voting power was so distributed as to allow an oligarchic group to control the government's policies. This group had the power to disallow elections, which went against it, as well as the power to force the dismissal from local Soviets of anti-Bolshevist members. The right to vote could be arbitrarily withdrawn by order of the central authorities. Free speech and the right to enjoy a free press were suppressed. Lenin admitted that Bolshevism does not represent the toiling masses and declared that the word democracy cannot be scientifically applied to the Bolshevist party. Both Lenin and Trotsky declared that they had no fixed policy except to do whatever at the moment seemed expedient regardless of previous statements or promises. 150. Abolition of the Capitalist System Socialism, so long a theory, became a practical concern at the moment that the Bolshevists secured control of the government. Private property and land was abolished. The arable land of Russia being apportioned among agriculturalists without compensation to the former owners. All mines, forests, and waterways of national importance were taken over by the central government, while the smaller woods, rivers, and lakes became the property of local Soviets. Banking establishments were seized and looted by Bolshevist forces. Factories, railroads, and other means of production and transport were taken over. Inheritance was abolished. Private initiative in business was forbidden. Members of the capitalist or employing classes were imprisoned, murdered, or driven from the country. In a word, the capitalistic system was destroyed, and the economic and political machinery of the country came under the full control of a small socialist group, maintained in power by armed force. 151. Paralysis of Industry Under Socialism the substitution of socialism for capitalism in Russia was followed by disaster. The workers were unable to carry on the industries which had been handed over to them. Discouraged by repeated errors in administration and demoralized by their sudden rise to power, they neglected their work and pillaged the factories and shops in which they had formerly been employed. The elimination of the managing employers resulted in a decrease in output. And, to aggravate the situation, the laborers continued to insist upon a shorter and shorter working day. In desperation, the government attempted to keep the people at their tasks by force. The workers were exploited to a degree previously unknown, even in Russia. They worked longer hours and for less pay than formerly. In many places, they were attached to their tasks like medieval serfs and even harnessed to carts like beasts of burden. The trade unions were abolished, and the workers were forbidden to strike, on pain of imprisonment or death. Yet, despite these measures, the output of factories, mills, and mines steadily decreased. 
industry stagnated, and business fell away. The millions of Russia were starving in a land of plenty. 152. Return to Capitalistic Methods To save the country from economic ruin, Lenin turned to capitalism. Free initiative and open competition in trade were again allowed. The socialization of railroads, mills, and natural resources was halted. The arable land, under which socialism had not grown enough food to support even the peasants living upon it, was again cultivated under the wage system. The capitalists and managing employers who were alive and still in Russia were gathered together and placed in charge of industry. The laborers, who had been promised an eight- or six-hour day in complete control of industry, were now forced by the Bolshevist government to work long hours under their former employers for practically no pay. By 1919, the essential features of the capitalistic system had been accepted by Lenin and Trotsky, the Bolshevists continuing in power as a despotic group which maintained authority over the laborers and the employers by armed force. The theory that all except the laborers are parasites had been exploded. 153. Was socialism given a fair trial in Russia? To point out that an experiment has failed is one thing. To prove that it has been attempted under fair conditions is quite another. We cannot, therefore, condemn the Bolshevist experiment without some regard for the conditions under which it was conducted. Undoubtedly, the Bolshevists had to contend against several important difficulties. The majority of the Russian people are illiterate peasants who had, at the time of the overthrow of the Tsar in 1917, little or no training in self-government. In 1917, Russia was, moreover, in a state of political demoralization, the result of three years of war, concluded by a military debacle and a disorderly peace. The suddenness with which socialism was introduced was also a factor which handicapped the Bolshevists. On the other hand, many favorable conditions were present. With respect to natural resources, Russia is one of the richest countries in the world. She has practically everything necessary to a healthy and self-sufficing industrial life. Over this wealth, the Bolshevists had full control. Lenin, the Bolshevist chief, is conceded to have been a remarkable executive, so that the socialist experiment was conducted by a man not only well-versed in Marxian doctrine, but capable of exercising an intelligent and authoritative control of the government. The Bolshevist territory was blockaded by Great Britain, France, and the United States, but trade connections between Russia and the two last-named countries had been unimportant. Trade connections with Germany and Sweden on the west and China on the east were not broken off. It is clear that the socialist experiment in Russia was attended by important advantages and disadvantages. Whether or not Bolshevism had an absolutely fair trial is as yet impossible to say. On the other hand, the disastrous failure of the experiment would seem to indicate that it could not have met with any great degree of success under fairly favorable conditions. The admissions of the Bolshevist leaders themselves, together with the conclusions of the most impartial investigators of the experiment, justify the conclusion that socialism in Russia failed because it was based upon false principles. 
The Bolshevists have been accused of having instituted a reign of terror, bringing in its train lawlessness, murder, desecration of the church, and the most brutal savagery. Into these charges we cannot go. It is enough that the most reliable evidence goes to show that Bolshevism, as a nationwide application of socialist doctrine, was a failure. 154. Failure of Bolshevist Propaganda Beyond Russia Bolshevism, in common with other varieties of socialism, sought to break down national barriers and to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat in all of the countries of the world. Some of the milder socialists in Western Europe and America disavowed the acts of the Russian group, but the majority of socialists beyond Russia appear to have at least secretly sympathized with the Bolshevists. Encouraged by this attitude, Lenin and Trotsky frankly admitted their intention of fomenting worldwide revolution. The Bolshevist government appropriated large sums for propaganda in countries beyond Russia, and socialist sympathizers everywhere advocated an attempt to overthrow world capitalism. In the period of unrest immediately following the World War, there was some response to Bolshevist propaganda in a number of countries, but sounder opinion prevailed, and in 1920, Lenin admitted that the working men of Europe and America had definitely rejected his program. The one case of nationwide socialism had proved too great a failure not to impress the laboring classes in the more advanced countries of the world as a visionary and unworkable scheme. End of chapter 15